1: Thursday, September twenty fourth, 2015. Do you remember out there when the whole foreclosure mess started? The bank swore there were no trusts that owned these loans. Turns out that was the only truth they told. Tonight we have another interesting show because we have a return engagement with Dan Edstrom and attorney Charles Marshall with offices all over the place, including uh, in uh, the San Francisco area and Irvine, San Jose, uh, He services basically as does Dan Edstrom as a forensic analyst, um, uh, all of California, and they both provide mitigation support to attorneys nationwide. Um, And uh, I think uh, most people who have used their services would uh, agree that their help was indispensable. Then, going way back to 2007, 2008, was one of those who discovered and confirmed the existence of the trust, despite the bank's denials, and then the truth and the fabrication of mortgage documents, backdated assignments, undated endorsements, servicer advances, and the real reason the banks push foreclosure when it is obvious that the real creditor would be better off with a modification or workout with the borrower. The real question is is the relationship, this is a legal question one of creditor and debtor, lender and borrower, or is it something else? I think it's something else. And I'll give you the example in a minute. People called in from last week's show when we had Dan Edstrom and Charles Marshall and Jim Macklin uh, on the show. Jim is in court today, so we don't have him back. But we have Dan and Charles uh, who joined, uh, who join us tonight, and we're lucky to have them on this show. I am broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, AMGAR, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show or the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. For our friends at the foreclosure mills who are listening into this show, we know who you are. No contribution is required. Just recognize the error of your ways and we'll be happy with that. Living Lies, a blog with nearly 11 million visits, is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and even student loans. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help beleaguered homeowners and other consumers who may or may not be aware of the effect that the housing crisis has had on their lives. And we're accomplishing our mission here as more and more judges are seeing that the facts are not as they appear on the paperwork that's being used by banks, trustees, and services to foreclose. And for the judges that don't get it, the U.S. Supreme Court explained it to them. The court, the trial judge, may not interpret a statute that is clear on its face. That means when the statute says void, you can't make it voidable. When the statute says no lawsuit is required, then no lawsuit is required to make a rescission effective. When the statute says effective by operation of law, then it means that it has the same legal effect as a court order, right or wrong. The judge can't read into a perfectly clear statute new terms applied from common law or any other source. When the statute says no tender of money or property is even proper for a TLA rescission, the judge may not read it as you can't rescind unless you have the money on hand. We have a new case going to the Supreme Court now that is going to decide whether a judge can say whether void means voidable. One is final and the other is not. If Jesinoski is any measure of what the Supreme Court will do with that, we can expect another unanimous decision for the borrowers. If the trust doesn't own the loan, it is the servicer and the trustee who don't have standing, not the borrower. And now we have a number of test cases regarding rescissions, including those sent within the, la- within the three-year period from when the documents were signed and those that are older and sometimes much older. My answer is that the statute and the Supreme Court are unanimous. The statute, as Justice Scalia says, makes no distinctions between disputed and undisputed rescissions statute says that the procedures apply to all decisions, whether they're disputed or undisputed, whether they're right or whether they're wrong. So when letters that declare cancellation of the loan and the note and mortgage that are wrong when sent, they're still effective when mailed. That is the point. If the banks want to do anything about it, they must file a lawsuit. There are seminars around the country in which lawyers and brokers are dealing with this issue, and they all point to the fact that the financial industry knows that it is is in trouble. Rescission will level the playing field. People were saying I was wrong before before the Jesinoski decision came out. Now they're saying the Supreme Court is wrong. Breaking news. The Supreme Court is final whether it is right or wrong. Rescission is final until lawfully vacated by operation of law, and that means it is the banks who must file the lawsuit, not the borrower. But the biggest problem that people are having is getting their minds wrapped around the proposition that they might not have been a loan at all. How could there be no loan when the transaction appeared to have been closed, the seller got paid, the former alleged lender got paid, and some money was even given to the homeowner? Doesn't that make the homeowner a borrower? Doesn't that make the originator a lender? I say the answer is no. The homeowner is not a borrower or a debtor in nearly all those transactions, and the originator is not a creditor nor a lender. The simple truth is that this was a grand, fraudulent scheme. Just because the bank successfully duped pension funds into giving them money doesn't make the pension fund your lender, nor does it make the originator your lender. And it certainly doesn't mean that the remit trust they are using in in foreclosures is a creditor, lender, or successor. The closest analogy I can think of, and maybe somebody out there can come up with something better, is this. Somebody robs a bank and leaves the bank with five bags of money. He drops by your house and leaves two bags of money and makes off with the rest. So the thief has three bags of money and you have two bags. Is the money yours? No. Is it a gift from the bank? No. Is it a a gift from the thief? No. Is it a loan? No. But you still owe the money to someone back at the bank if they ask for it. Later, the thief comes back and says, I loaned you two bags of money. You didn't pay it back, so I want to sue you and get a judgment. By the way, if you want to avoid the lawsuit, just sign these papers and I won't sue you. So you sign the papers, and he immediately leaves the country after leaving the paperwork from the alleged loan with some party whom we will call a servicer or trustee. The servicer or trustee sues you and you find that you have put up your house as collateral in those papers. The thief convinced you to sign. Somehow, over time, he convinced you he was working for a bank. And now, your two bags of money are going to be turned into a loan, or at least loan papers. In fact, you might find that you sign papers requiring you to pay for all five bags of money that was stolen by the thief. The trustee and the servicer, for their own reasons, some of which are obvious, want the judgment and forced sale of your property. You attempt to defend, saying, wait a minute, I didn't get a loan from the servicer or trustee. I didn't get a loan from the thief who stole this money from a bank. I owe the bank money, not the servicer or the trustee. But the servicer and the trustee ridicule you and ask, okay, which bank? It turns out they know which bank, but they won't tell you, which in turn prevents you from going to the bank who suffered from the loss of the bank robbery, and it prevents you from alleging who the bank is. So the way things are going now, the thief keeps the three bags of money he stole, the servicer forecloses on the house and keeps the proceeds, the bank that was robbed is out five bags of money, and you lose a house, that has been in your family for generations. The three gentlemen on our program last week, as I said with Dan, Dan Epstrom, Jim Macklin, and Charles Marshall, these men are leading the fight against the bank services in California by systematically taking individual and joinder clauses of action to the highest levels of the judiciary, including the Ninth Circuit Appeal for Rescission filed by Jim Macklin. If anyone wants a copy of that brief, just call uh, our numbers, 954-495-9867 or 520-405-1688. As I said, Jim is in court, so we have Dan and Charles with us today to continue the discussion from last week. Jim, Dan, welcome to the Neil Garfield Show.
2: Thank you, Neil. It's uh, Dan and Charles.
1: Dan... What is the common theme that you see as the hurdle being thrown up by the courts against most homeowners?
2: Uh, The common theme that I see is um, presumptions that the documents are valid and um, admissions by the homeowner themselves um, that they got into a loan, resulting in the court being able to make determinations at the beginning Um, basically to dismiss the lawsuit.
1: I think that's important because from the beginning, I've said, admit nothing. And yet, lawyers and pro se litigants um, and pro se people who are not in litigation generally start off with the presumption of, yes, I got that loan. When in fact... They received money, like I said in my example, but they didn't get that loan that's in the documents. Is that what you're referring to? Right. I'm
2: referring to um, in some of the cases I've seen pre-existing contracts where basically the payee, of the note, is acting as a broker for uh, another Wall Street bank, and the Wall, and they basically they have existing contracts that go back that say that they will get the money from them to fund the loan, yet that originator will be placed on the note as a payee, even though the money never passed through their hands and they were never at risk.
1: Exactly. I hope people are listening. Charles, you've been a practicing attorney for over eight years in this particular battle. Are you seeing a change in the position of the courts? And if so, is it a positive?
3: Uh, Neil, yes, there have been some developments. And I would say, you know, like many areas, in some aspects, the changes have been negative and some positive. Uh, One positive that I've noticed is that a lot of these cases are now going forward, meaning they're getting past the demure stage and the motion to dismiss stage. If it's a federal lawsuit, the causes of action are actually going forward in certain cases on wrongful foreclosure and also breach of contract. And this is something that I realize we have a wide listening audience with a, you know, a very, um, diverse experience in terms of where they are in the foreclosure, you know, wheelhouse, um, But for pre-foreclosure cases, I'm having causes of action go through now in California, and that's a really big deal because there are still state judges and some federal judges who will look at a pre-foreclosure case and say, you can't argue wrongful foreclosure under California law unless there's actually been an auction sale that's deprived you of the property. But fortunately, there is a trend away from that always limited and uh, really wrongheaded reading of the law. There's a particular judge uh, out of San Francisco Federal District Court, Conti, who I think is one of the most uh, advanced in his thinking on this issue. But it is becoming a trend, and at a minimum, it's allowing borrowers to get a lot more traction in settlement talks. I, I think one thing that borrowers should always remember when they go into a lawsuit environment to try to solve their, their mortgage problem, all lawsuits are predicated on settlement value. All settlement value is predicated on what a fact finder will do, if your case goes to trial. So, of course, we always ask for a jury trial, at, you know, in the vast majority of cases. There's almost no reason ever not to because a lot of the uh, the fellow jurors, the jurors who will be a jury of the borrower's peers, they will have gone through the same process, a significant number of them. They've either gone through it themselves or they, they know individuals close to them who have gone through it. Right. And it, the lenders and servicers are terrified of having these cases go to trial. So they will and do settle quite readily when cases do go to trial. And since we're getting past what's called in the legal world the joining of pleading stage, meaning the case uh, has gotten past a mirror motion to dismiss, then the only realistic way for the uh, for the defendants to get out of the case is to is to settle. I mean, sometimes they'll go with uh, a motion for summary judgment or a judgment on the pleadings. But if they've already lost at the motion to dismiss stage, those types of motions are really granted.
1: Yeah, I for myself, I've seen a change that I think is for the better, but it's the usual. Wheels of justice grind slowly. There are still judges out there, and I have to deal with them either directly or indirectly, who believe that there is no defense in reality, and therefore they're only creating the illusion of due process by allowing the pro se litigant or the lawyer for the for the homeowner to say something and then overrule it. Because in their minds, it's just inconceivable that the homeowner doesn't owe money to these people. And he thinks that although the securitization is chaotic and convoluted and complex... And may not have been executed properly. That's not a reason to let a borrower get a free house. But like I said in my, in my intro, it's not a free house to the borrower. The free house is going to other parties who don't have one dime in the deal. And the people who do have money in the deal don't even know it. And that's been the way, in my opinion, and I owe some of this knowledge to Dan Edstrom, that's been the way the banks have been able to steer through what should have been a disaster for them by keeping the pension funds that advance the money away from the borrowers who if they didn't get money, at least had the appearance that money was paid for them, by keeping them separate, the truth can't come out. And the real transaction of real money, changing hands, never sees the light of day. And so we have those, but more and more judges that used to rule with a rubber stamp, are taking a step back, in my opinion, and they're taking a new look. And that's why I recommend to people that they attend a seminar to cover material that we could never have the time to do in a radio show like this. And Dan, would you give the information on the seminar that you're giving on October 17th in Emeryville?
2: Sure. The um, actual link is pretty long. It's on your website, um, Living Lies. And um, if they need that directly, they can call me, 916-207-6706.
1: Knowledge is power, people. And although you may not want to spend the time finding out what really happened, you've got to have a working knowledge of the terminology and the systems that are in place in order to know what to really expect from a lawyer when you hire them. And in my opinion, and Charles, I'll ask you this question, do you think that the day of the pro se litigant is essentially over because of the complexity of legal arguments now?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's over for another, uh, I think, very compelling reason. And again, I would look at this through the lens of law generally beyond even the foreclosure arena. And that is this. The more difficult the legal arena, the more predisposed judges are generally to ruling against you, no matter what you're bringing and no matter how you frame it, then it's absolutely critical to have somebody with the experience and the intention of uh someone like Dan and myself, because that's the only way your case has a chance I mean that's just the reality if uh if people had a general personal injury matter they could they could usually just go to anybody down the street and there's a pretty narrow range of settlements that they would get It wouldn't matter really how experienced their attorney was and this arena the foreclosure arena if you don't have a an experienced attorney, you're dead in the water, and you absolutely must have an attorney. And the vast majority of scenarios, because that's the only way to get your case moving forward, and following up briefly from what you were saying earlier, Neil, um, I wanted to also emphasize, you know, the importance of you bringing up the issue of how borrowers need to have their attorneys if their attorneys aren't doing this on their own right out of the gate. You don't admit to anything. I mean, the only thing that you might hypothetically admit to is there was some kind of a financial transaction. But you don't describe it as a loan. Absolutely not. Because for the reasons you've given, Neil, it's not a loan. It's, it's not the kind of transaction that's going on for thousands of years where you go to somebody, they loan you money, you get a house or you get a car, you get something else in return. That is not how this is working at all. And it's the whole decoupling of that traditional relationship that's created the havoc in the mortgage markets, crashed the economy, everything that's happened since early you know, 2000, uh, 2009, late 2008. So the nub of that is because you have a lot of old school judges out there that still want to uh, accuse you, the borrower, of trying to get a free home, the way you dislocate that that right at the beginning is make sure your pleadings do not admit to a loan. And right off the bat, say that uh, this money was transferred out of the original contractual arrangement right from the beginning. In fact, it was anticipated right from the beginning. And you were never meant to be relied on as the borrower as the party repaying the loan. That's profound. That's huge. That needs to be in your pleadings.
1: Yeah, I mean, based what what uh what i know now and what i've confirmed uh both with direct contacts on wall street and by what i know from having been on wall street and just by logic is that essentially this money is stolen money the pension funds had no intention of allowing that money to be used the way it was. And like my example with the five bags of money from that were stolen from the bank, there's no loan transaction there. And anybody else who tries to step in and fill the void because the bank doesn't know who has the money and who's uh, drawn up paperwork, anybody who is in that position should be able to figure out with help and argue that I'm not party to a loan transaction. I am a victim like everybody else. And just because the robber stopped by my house doesn't mean that I'm a bank robber and it also doesn't mean I'm a borrower. And... Of course, in equity, the bank is entitled to receive the money back, the one who lent the money. But that's not the same thing as these foreclosures and breach of contract and so forth. There is no contract between the investors and the borrowers. So, Dan, before we go off the air, can you give us a quick rundown of the agenda with some emphasis on practical knowledge? Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly and what's going to be covered in the seminar?
2: Yeah, the seminar starts out by looking at, you know, the beginning at the contract, each element of the contract, the delivery, whether the homeowner authorized delivery, and what happens if the delivery is put at issue. Um, We look at the escrow closing and what are the uh, conditions precedent to closing escrow. Um, And again, ultimately, in all those, is the consummation and what the you know, whether that did or did not happen or what it would look like if it didn't happen. Um, We're going to get into a little bit about the recording statute, the recording priorities, uh, the formation of a lien. Uh, Let's see. Um, Other topics are going to be uh, title issues.
1: Okay. So, uh, Charles, by the way, uh, what telephone number can people call if they want to hire you?
3: Yeah, if they're interested in that and they just want to get perspective on any of these issues we've been discussing, 619-807-2628. Again, that's 619-807-2628.
1: Well, I want to uh, – I wish I could do more, guys, and I guess I'll be having you back again after the seminar. Um I want to thank Charles Marshall, attorney with offices uh, in uh, various parts of California, Dan Edstrom, our senior forensic analyst for Living Lies, and for all of the rest of you who have been contributing to our knowledge base at Living Lies. See you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services.